following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. You should experience lots of explosions with no body parts. Parents should be ready to cover their ears. Broken Sea Audio Production, OTR Swag Cast. Listen to Texas Hold'em. He warned you that a haunted castle was no place to wear your finery. But now here you are fighting off Acromantula in an evening gown and high heels. Suit of armor. Good thing traveling all these years with Jake Sampson has taught me to make use of what's around me. He always says that our wits are the best weapon we've got. And this sword that I found on that suit of armor makes quick use of any giant spiders around. And I think it'd make a nice Halloween present for Ted. Whoa, spider! Oh, okay. I think that was the last one. Now, down this spooky hallway. Boy, I hope those living skeletons don't break the chains holding them to the wall like that. I remember my Grandpa Howard Carter, the famous archaeologist, telling me stories of the skeletons he ran into. Gosh, I sure miss Grandpa Howard. Gave me my first gun and taught me to shoot. I remember his words when he gave me that six-shooter. Lucy, he said, you learn to shoot straight and you'll learn what takes bullets and what doesn't. I'm guessing those skeletons don't take bullets. Hey, there's doors here. One of these must lead up to the landing strip where Tex is waiting with the Rowdy Rita. But which door do I choose? Let's see. This one's labeled Theater 5. This one's labeled Vanishing Point. This one's labeled the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. This one's got escape written on it. I like that. This one says suspense. Which do I choose? I think I'll take... This one. <laughs> 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 
This is Jake Sampson, Monster Hunter. I don't always listen to old-time radio or podcast audio dramas. But when I do, I prefer BrokenSea.com. Stay listening, my friends. everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight... We escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence as we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water. Gray, green, scum dappled, warm as soup and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish. Great violet schools of Portuguese man-of-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. A wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door And in you went And up Yes, up and up and round and round Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope Casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans And up, and up and up, round and round over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And at night, she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. 
And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste. What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation... The most I could ever get out of him was... Jean, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, you're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they'd send me somebody... That was Louis. When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down. Because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Yes, indeed. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louis! Louis! Couldn't understand it. I waited for the light to come around again. I had the glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest. I know. I know what it is. Huh? What? The Dutchman. The flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon, hag-ridden, cursed-ribbon, must on... Shut up, will you? She's loving. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. 
Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust, and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, heeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief? She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it you... I had to focus and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi- I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look. Chatterbox, give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. She's going to turn. She better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, want the glasses again? Want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say, I pray you. Turn. She's cracking up. The rats. Look, on the water. Like a carpet. They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below. It's open. Come on. Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Reggie, but hurry, hurry! Look. See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. Yeah. Let me. Oh, move, you move. He made it. Holy. That was close. One guy in. Look, there. Get him! He's as big as a turtle. Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, hard and ravenous, and we fought him. Fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Got him. We better get aloft. We ran up the winding staircase. We passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louie, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you 
look at them. The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. I could not see the sky, nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling, hairy snouts, and their teeth, the rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving, and we three, we stood very quietly, oh, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light, and we waited. What can we do? What can we do? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I can't. I just can't. It won't do any good to stand here and shake. Uh, that's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. <laughs> they don't light the fire, do they? <laughs> Guess not. Give me another match. <laughs> you don't like that much, do you? Like don't that? rile them, August. <laughs> Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't go away. <laughs> not until... Let me see, Jake. Not until what? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the class. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it had drowned some of them. Ships rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter six. You've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, Argus. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamps. It caught them. Lift them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about of a turning, of a touching, of a moving around and around. And they, twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light bright light moving, and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. relieved me at 
ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early next morning, there stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Pray, Lottie, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will not hurt turning. you. I much. stood staring at him, horror-struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Ah, another one. A latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Agus, Move stop over it, there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. he didn't come, come, He went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arm. He looked at me like a child. And then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on. Oh, very well, then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> We could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louie was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Sharks. They're eating them. Yeah, the sharks are our friends. Yeah, yeah. I'll get another bunch together. Yeah, my beauty. That's it. Pile of kill each other. There they go. Auguste joined in, too. Oh, very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats. It went on all day. And then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come uh, quick! What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy body scudding against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. So what was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. 
Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed the marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louie with the other. It had ripped his hand open, and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louie. I'll, I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my... My blood, I'm bleeding. Now, don't worry about it, Louie. Here, look. I'll, I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. There, now. It's not bad, just the flesh. Then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through Louis, Louis, we've got to go up. Next level was the living quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too. But it, too, was wood. Uh, my blood. What are we going to do? Hell no. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. Across the trap door exhausted. While below us, the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. The hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. <laughs> Would you like to come in, my beauty? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in with all. August was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet, and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder. Who? I found a coil of wire in the toolkit and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. <laughs> supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and the following night, I again tended the light, but this 
small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. And nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then... The rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but I was afraid. What if, what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the key, grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum, he never recovered. And Louis? They took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his vice. Oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tadeus, adapted for radio by James Poe and starring Vincent Price as Jean. Supporting Mr. Price were Harry Bartell as August and Jeff Corey as Louis. Sound effects on Three Skeleton Key 
created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Harry Essman was at the control panel, and special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Human speech is the music of civilized man, and it is the sentimental memory of men who once were civilized. Theater 5 presents The Talkers. Last time, you know. Oh, oh, oh. It'll take me longer. You wait for me. Right. We'll go out and talk some more, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Clegg, we'll talk. You and me.
the music of civilized men. And it is the sentimental memory of men who once were civilized. Men in their various prisons yearn to talk to one another. Even in the underground caves of a radioactive land, they will crawl like listless alligators. Just to talk together and to pretend they are men again. Men who are human and social and articulate. See that cloud up there? Yeah. Way above the mine shaft across from us. Uh, I see. <laughs> I see. Look, they're different from the old ones. They're like big crickets, don't you think? Ah. Uh, These are bigger. They're more like flying grasshoppers. Flag, I saw them last time I looked out. Just listen. Uh. Hear that? They're noisier, too. Lots of them. <laughs> Boy, there's lots of them. <laughs> I think it's a good sign. I, I really do. There's nothing growing, of course, not even a weed, but even so, they must be living on something. <laughs> must be. That stands to reason, all right. Got to live on something. Getting bigger, too. Mm. I used to think they lived on one another. Like the fish in the sea, you know. The big fish eats the little fish, and the bigger fish eats the big fish. Right. What did the little fish eat? Huh? Little fish? Well, there's an answer for that. But I forgot it. Clag. Clag, look at them now. Uh, look. They cover the whole countryside. And they're not eating each other. Hey, hey. Look at those over there. <laughs> when we first came out, you remember, there was only the dust and nothing in the air at all. How come the dust doesn't bother them? I don't know. I used to think they were like us. You know, like we come out here and sit when the dust isn't near the shaft's opening. I thought they would fly to some clear patch of clean air. But that new bunch there is right in the middle of some dots. Marco, Marco, you see that? Yes, yes, yes. I, I see that. Frank, I told you about that the last time we came out here to talk. I like to talk. Oh, oh I, I really do. <laughs> yeah, I really... You, you can't talk down there. And in the dark and all. You're right. You just can't talk down in the dark. That's all there is to it. You know, we tried it month after month. No, it only makes sense out here. Out here where we can see each other's faces. You can't talk down there. No. It's too dark. We found ourselves mumbling and groping for words. Yes. Oh. 
It takes some might. Just to talk. We can talk out here. All right. Yeah. Clegg, mm. <laughs> you remember I told you about the flies and the DDT? How they made this new poisonous chemical years ago just to kill off the flies, and uh, how the flies developed their own immunity to it, and instead of being killed, they got bigger and fatter from it? I remember <laughs> you telling me about the flies and the... The DDT. Yes. Good. Good. Now, what else did I tell you? Michael, I don't really remember. I, I was just talking. It's all right, Clag. It doesn't matter. But listen to me. I, I figured then that the insects, for some reason, were the only form of life that had developed some immunity to radioactive dust on the surface. Huh? Now, today, when I watched these new bigger bugs, I, I was sure of it. It's like a fly. And the DDT. Only it's not, no. No, 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 no. I, I didn't really think it was. Clag, I, Clag, will you listen to me? Ah, uh, I think I've figured out what's happening. We're all underground because of the dust, however many of us there are left. The dust keeps us off the surface. But these billions and billions of insects get bigger and more plentiful as time goes on. It's... Clag... Can't you see what I mean? No. Honest, Merker, I can't see. Where are all the bugs coming from? How, how come they don't die? Don't you they... understand? The radioactive dust is coming to life right before our eyes, Clag. Uh, now that is where the bugs are coming but from. But where are all the bugs coming from? They are coming from the dust. Don't you see? Clag, the dust is turning into bugs. Now, now pay attention. Instead of a cloud of dust, we're getting a cloud of insects. That's what's happening. Some new cycle of life is happening. Oh. Oh. Uh, no wonder they're so good. No, no, no. Stop that. Clash, stop that. Look, I don't mind you catching them. But I've told you before, wait, wait until you get down below. Now you wait. Or I won't talk to you anymore. I mean it. I won't talk to you. All right. I'll wait. I'll wait. I sure have to talk. I, I really do. I do. Oh, Michael, Michael, please, please. Don't worry, Michael. I'll wait. I'll wait. I really will. I really will. God again. Uh, I wouldn't miss the chance. 
I like to talk. I, only forget what I forget. No, Clack. No. Now, save it. Keep it until later. Now, you promised me you would. They're getting bigger and bigger. I know, I know. Look how much bigger the clouds are. That was less dust, too. It's happening, isn't it? What's happening? Well, what you said about the dust starting to rise and, and, and turning into bugs. Yes. Yes, I really think so. No way of proving it, but it certainly looks that way. But it... I'm sorry, Michael. I, I, I won't do it again. I'm glad I don't mind anymore. Just as long as I'm not watching. Now, if you want to talk with me, you better wait like you promised. Uh, I, I love to talk. I, let's talk about the old days. <laughs> the old days. Oh, yes, it was funny in the old days. I don't even know how long ago it was. Ah, Probably many years. Oh, many years. Oh, many years. We sit on the edge of a hole in the ground, worse than animals, really. You know, in the old days, I changed my clothes two and three times a day. Mm-hmm. I changed everything. Underwear, shirts, socks, everything. Oh. Now all I've got are my sores. Now, yours seem to be healing, Clag. Are you having less trouble? No, well, talking all day. All day. All day. I'd have a martini or two at the bar before lunch. Could you believe it? There were 20 barmen in town who knew exactly how I liked my martini. Very dry, wisp of a twist, once around the rim, and a certain kind of anchovy oil. Yes, I didn't even have to order. Just smile and nod as I went on with the conversation. <laughs> Isn't that absurd, won't you think of it? And here we are, years later, surrounded by bugs. Bugs. Of all things. Huge crickets and giant grasshoppers taking over what's left of the world. <laughs> Unbelievable. Clag. Mm. Come here. Come here. Close. Oh. You see this? What's that? That's a piece of glass. That's what it is. Just a fragment of glass. Look, look. You can see through it. Eh. I don't think it's window glass. Eh, 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 eh. That's glass. <laughs> That's what it is. That's glass. That's glass. Yeah. I think it's from a tumbler or a cocktail glass. You, you see how thin it is? Now, it's just a tiny fragment, Clack. But it reminds me of the old world where men looked through windows and drank from delicate, transparent containers. That's glass. That's glass, all right. <laughs> Clag, we decided once that we knew where this place was, didn't we? Hmm? Clag, didn't we figure out that this was West Virginia. Now, I, I think we guessed this was West Virginia. Now, didn't we find some bills of lading or something marked West Virginia, didn't we? West Virginia. West Virginia. West Virginia, Charleston, or Boston, or wherever you could drink with the help of a little glass. Yes, indeed. My martinis came surrounded by glass like this. 
And all that's left is a sliver of glass not really adequate to cut your throat with. A deep and stark shirt. And lie and laugh and try to swindle each other. Ah, yes, the old days were funny, all right. We were so busy changing suits and ordering martinis and trying to pull off a sophisticated swindle that we didn't even hear the bomb go off. <laughs> well, we live like kings. You know, if you think of it right, sheets and talcum powder, deodorants, air conditioning. And now we lie on our faces for hours in the dark of a mine shaft, alone, afraid to breathe too deeply. The underground seepage keeping our wounds from healing. That looks a little better, Clag. Must be the trips up here to the outside. Clag, Clag. <laughs> it sure doesn't do much for your speech patterns listening to those bugs. And gorging yourself with those blasted insects don't help your conversation either. Better. Clag, what did we used to talk about over the martinis? What did we talk about over the martinis? I, I think we lied mostly, setting up some swindle or other. You know, all our sores were on the inside then, covered up with the talcum and the linen and the deodorants and the fancy tailoring. You know, Clagg, if I in the old days could have seen myself sitting here now, right now, I mean, not knowing that this was me, but just seeing me... Do you know what I would have done? <laughs> I would have screamed. That's the fact. I never could have visualized living being in this condition. Look at my matted hair, scabrous flesh, foul smelling. Flag, you should see yourself in this light. You don't look like a man any longer. Really, Clag. Your arms are leathery, skinny. They look more like sticks. And I swear they even bend the wrong way. Clag. Clag, your head, your eyes. I told you not to take so many. Clag, talk to me. Talk, man, talk. Clag. Please try to say one human word. You're gone, Clag. You won't talk to me anymore. You've lost the power of human speech just as I've forgotten how to scream. I'm trying to scream, but I can't scream any more than Clag can talk. Oh, Lord, please hear me screaming. I really scream. Human speech is the music of civilized man, and it is the sentimental memory of men who once were civilized.
Live has presented The Talkers, written by Burr McCloskey and directed by Ted Bell. In the cast, Donald Buca and Robert Dryden. Audio engineers Marty Folia and Neil Pulse. Sound technician Ed Blaney. Original music by Alexander Vlasdotsenko. We invite your comments. Write to Theater 5, New York 23, New York. This is Fred Foy speaking. Marshall. It's been said that you can always recognize a werewolf simply by shaking hands. If the handshaker has hair on the inside of his palms, QED, a werewolf. Of course, this is an old wives' tale. As for me, I'm perfectly willing to accept the fact that the whole idea of werewolves was absurdly exaggerated by the superstitious during the Middle Ages. However, I would like some explanation of the concept everyone recognizes today of the subconscious, something inside a person which can take over and utterly control a person's mind and actions, particularly under great stress. Don't shoot, man! Don't shoot! Or be prepared to spend the rest of your life on your knees praying for the Lord's forgiveness. Our mystery drama, Night of the Howling Dog, was especially adapted from the classic by Algernon Blackwood for the Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett and stars Mason Adams and Norman Rose. Here on WABC. The pages of fiction are filled with surrogates passionately pleading the causes of other lovers to beautiful ladies. The characters of Cyrano de Bergerac, John Alden courting Patricia for Miles Standish, and the devil himself serenading the beautiful Margarita on behalf of Faust. These are only a few examples that come immediately to mind. However, I had never heard of a lover deputizing an animal to forward his suit until now. And to bring you this amazing story, I introduce an eyewitness. It's strange that as I approach the end of my years, I now find more people willing to believe the stories of my adventures with my employer, the famed psychologist of the occult, Duane Carter. When I was working so closely with Duane and writing down these excursions into the dark recesses of men's soul and minds, I found nothing but skeptics. Today, perhaps since we know more, we now realize there are still things we don't know. At any rate, let me start at the beginning of this incredible phenomenon. 
It all began when Duane and I said goodbye at London's Waterloo Station on a hot July day in 1912. Now, Ernie, we've got a full fall schedule, so you be sure and get plenty of rest. I want you to be raring to go when we meet in Stockholm on August 15th. Unless, of course, you should send for me sooner. Send for you? If I'm going to need you, Duane, then I'm hardly going to have a restful vacation. Nonsense. Both of us know the strange effects a stay in the wilderness can have on people who wear the trappings of civilization the rest of the year. Well, you were the one who prescribed getting back to nature is the prescription that straightened out Timothy Manning's life. If he hadn't come to consult you, he'd still be preaching in a pulpit, making his wife and daughter's lives miserable. But Timmy isn't the only member of your little party. Are you are you trying to sound a warning? If so, you'll have to be more specific. Well, I have nothing specific in mind. Just a feeling that will very probably turn out to be wrong. You go ahead and enjoy yourself, Ernie. And forget what I said. Dwayne must have known. The one thing I could not do was forget what he said. Dwayne Carter's whole reputation as a scientist was based on his uncanny sixth sense. An intuition that enabled him to handle cases too bizarre for other psychiatrists. So I was more than ordinarily alert as our boat approached the shore of the small island we'd chosen for our case. Easy there, Annie. Peter, lend him your hand and we'll pull the cutter further up the beach. Then unload and the ladies will see to the tents and other supplies. Ah... This is the life. Room for body and mind. Just the place for a man to refuel his soul. And how does a man go about doing that, Reverend? <laughs> I'll let Peter Sangre answer that. Peter, here's a perfect opportunity for you to show Ernie how much you've learned since you started studying with me. There'll be time enough for theology lessons later, Dad. Right now, Peter could be very useful in giving Mother and me a hand with some of these supplies. Oh, I'll be happy to, any time at all. I'm always very happy to help you, Miss Manning. Peter Sangree was a young Canadian studying for the ministry under the Reverend Manning's tutelage. He'd been staying with the family back in New York, and it was obvious that he'd been smitten by the laughing eyes of Joan Manning. So obvious that it was sometimes embarrassing to watch the depth of yearning in his eyes. This was painfully evident the first night when Peter, Joan, and I joined forces exploring our island. Well, I never realized the Baltic Sea had this many small islands so close to shore. It's so beautiful. The water's so calm. I wish we had the canoe. We could paddle to the other islands while we still have the northern lights. Good idea. You and Peter wait here and I'll go across and fetch No! Let Peter get the canoe. You and I will wait here. Oh, you bet. I'll be back as soon as I can. Well, Johnny, what was that all about? You found me rude. Well, let's say very definite about not wanting to be alone with Peter. Oh, dear. It was very obvious then. I'm sure he noticed. I wouldn't worry about him, Joan. Surely you know he's madly in love with you, and you shouldn't feel upset if you don't like him. I don't dislike him. It's just that I see his eyes on me, seeking, even demanding, and and I'm afraid he might do or say something that would lead to unpleasantness. You? Joan Manning, the fearless, frightened. Atlas, I'm serious. There's something about Peter that makes me feel creepy. 
Something I don't think he knows himself. I'll confess it draws me, attracts me, but at the same time it makes me afraid. Joan, I don't know whether you're trying to tell me you're afraid of Sangri or something in you. My heart tells me there's something in Peter Sangri. Something buried deep inside him. Something dark and perhaps even dangerous. And I'm desperately afraid and desperately curious. How long has Peter been studying for the ministry with your dad? Almost a year. And this is the first time that you've had this feeling about it? Yes. It only happened since we came here. Away from New York and civilization. It seems almost... What he's been waiting for. What we've both been waiting for. The business of setting up camp for the first few days relegated that strange conversation to the back of my mind. But the Reverend Timmy brought it back sharply with a strange prayer one night. We give thanks to you, O Lord, for our safe arrival. We also give thanks for our excellent health and pray this may continue for all of us. And the weather be fair, the fish be plentiful. And that nothing from the kingdom of darkness nor any evil thing disturb our nighttime tranquility. Daddy, what brought that on? Just a thought, Joan. It came into my mind, and I let the Lord know of it. Reverend, I don't think we should put thoughts like that in the Lord's mind. I think I can explain, Mr. Simpson. Were you, Peter? Yes, sir. You see, I don't know if any of the others felt it. But I know that... I sense something. Some presence here on the island with us. But that's impossible. Our exploration showed there were two things lacking on our little island. Fresh water and animals. I didn't say anything about an animal, Joan. I said a presence. Now, come, children. Perhaps my prayer was out of place. Let's all be off to our tents and a good night's rest. Let's not play tricks. I know someone's trying to frighten me. I'm I'm coming out and see whoever it is that's playing this childish game. Joan. I'm really sorry about that prayer last night. It, it obviously upset you and made you dream about some animal or other growling around your tent. I tell you. I distinctly heard the howling of a dog. Didn't anyone else hear it? Of course not. No one else heard it because you dreamed it. Because of the lack of water, there's not an animal of any size on the whole island. You know we have to fetch our water from that little island across the way. I know what I heard. And it wasn't a dream. Well, there's nothing to prevent some animal from swimming over. A deer, for instance, might easily land in the night and decide to take a look around. Well, look, Mr. Simpson... I'd like you and the other men to come along with me. Mother, you stay here. You've already seen the tracks. And I want Daddy to apologize to me and admit that I'm not having bad dreams. All right, now. There, look. Look at those marks on the outside of the tent. Are you going to tell me that they're not animal tracks? Certainly they are. These tracks appear to have been made by some type of fairly large animal. I, I apologize. I'm... Sorry I doubted you, darling. Oh, Daddy, I'm so frightened. 
just plain scared. <laughs> Mr. Simpson, look here. Look at these marks. The brute must have been scratching around my tent, too. It certainly looks that way. These are the same marks. Did you hear anything? Not me. Since I've come here, I sleep like a log. Reverend, would you come over here to Peter's tent for a minute? Coming, Simpson. Strange. I wonder if Mrs. Manning heard anything. After all, her tent is right next to Jones. Timmy, Timmy, what do you make of those tracks? Looks like an animal, right enough. Tell you what I'd appreciate, Simpson, if you don't mind. Well, I'm here to help. Why don't you take Joan out for the day? On a hike or in the canoe. See if you can calm her down. I thank you for taking me on this canoe trip today. But I know Dad suggested it. That's right. But I thank you anyway. It's kind of you. Have you noticed any change in our friend Peter Sangree? You mean his attitude towards me? Good Lord, no. If anything, his devotion has become even more obvious. What do you mean? Changed? Well, he seems much more self-reliant. Almost as if he... As if... I don't know how to put it, but... Almost, almost as if this is where he belongs. So you sense something strange about him, too. No, 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 not strange. It's just that he he seems to fit in better here than when I first met him. He's, he's more confident. He's sure of himself. Yes, I felt that. And the more confident he gets, the more frightened I get. For the next few days and nights, there was no excitement. And our camp life seemed to have settled into a routine. Until one night, the quiet was shattered by screams coming from... Journey! Hang on, Journey, we're coming! Joan! Are you all right? No doubt about that, Reverend. See the gap where it, the thing or whatever it is ripped right through. And that dog again. We must do something. The first thing to do is to get over to the stockade and get a fire going. What's going on? I broke my rifle. If it's that animal again, let me have it. Come on, Peter. Help me start a fire. What in the world do you think it is, Mr. Simpson? It surely can't be a dog. It can't be very far away. We'll organize the hunt at once, this very minute. Now, slow, slow down, slow down, Reverend. Action, Ernie. Any action to stop panic. We've gone over every inch of this island, and there's no living creature on it besides ourselves. Peter's right, Reverend. Not even a squirrel could have gotten by us. All right. I know what it was. A dog from one of the farms on the larger island. A dog that's turned wild. It was attracted by our fires and the smell of food, and now it's gone back to where it came from. That's what it was. Oh, Daddy, you don't really believe what you just said. You can't believe that. You just can't. Occultists insist that events have souls. Souls given to them by the emotion and thoughts of those concerned with them. This in itself is a terrifying concept, 
because I can think of the souls of some events that must have shriveled with terror and agony that's indescribable. I'll be back with Act Two and the very strange events on the Baltic Island in a moment. Dream Theater on WABC. The virtues of life and vacations in the untrammeled wilderness have long been extolled in song and story. We've all longed for the starry nights with the wind sighing softly through the friendly branches of the protecting trees. But nature also has a savage side, and sometimes a trip to the wilderness can bring out whatever primitive savage lurks within us. I hate the rain, especially when I'm in the woods. I thought you could use today to catch up on your studying, Peter. Reverend says I'll pass my exams with flying colors and become a full-fledged minister in the fall. Well, Timmy should know. He should know more about his own daughter, too. What? What, what does that mean? Oh, nothing. I guess we're all upset by... by what's happened with Joan. Well, of course we are, but I don't understand what you meant about Joan's father. Forget it. I'm sorry I said it. I just wish one of us would be able to track down that dog, or whatever it is, that's gotten Joan in such a state. She should be all right with her mother. You know that she's moved into Mrs. Manning's tent now, and there should be no more nonsense. Nonsense? Is that what you think is so frightening for Joan? Maybe you should join forces with her father. I had no trouble going to sleep after my rather strange conversation with young Sangri, but suddenly I found myself wide awake. I jumped from dead sleep to absolute wakefulness in a single instant. The rain had stopped. I went outside and sniffed the delicious clean air. A pallid half-moon just sinking into the sea threw a spectral light between the trees. And then just... Twenty feet away across the paths, I saw a head thrust round the edge of Peter Sangree's tent. The head of an animal. An animal that had the appearance of no animal I'd ever seen before. Terror struck me. I knew it was the animal. And as I watched, riveted to the spot, the thing turned, slipped between the trees, and vanished. Wake up, Peter! Wake up! Well, Peter, come on, come on, come on! Is it? Peter, come on, the, the beast... The beast has been here in your tent. I swear it was about to leap at your throat. What, what, what are you saying? Let's not waste time. Quick, get your gun before Joan is attacked. Joan? Oh, yeah, yes, all right. Yes, let's get over there. I'm with you. Yes, I see the tracks. It's a wolf. That's what it is. A wolf lost among the islands and starving to death. Yes, I don't think so. It was unlike any animal I've ever seen. Whatever it is, it must be killed. Joan must be protected. I'll sleep all day and sit up all night and shoot the beast the minute I see it. No. No, I don't think this is anything that we can deal with. I have a better plan. I'm going to send for the one man I know who can help. Dwayne Carter. He will know what to do. Dwayne Carter? The psychic doctor? Yes. Then you think, what, it's something of that sort? I am certain of it. Although nothing Dwayne Carter ever did took me completely by surprise. I was astonished to find a letter care of general delivery in the Wax Home Post Office. It was from Carter, giving a Stockholm address and stating that a phone call would bring him to Wax Home that same day. And so that night, Dwayne Carter joined us on the island. And after dinner, with Peter also sitting in, I told him of the strange events. You did well to send for me, Ernie. What we have to deal with here is a werewolf, 
a werewolf. Oh, surely these things are... Rare enough, I'm happy to say, Mr. Sangree. Now, you say that no one has been injured so far. No, surely there can't be any question of this poor, starved beast injuring anybody, can there? I hope not. But what makes you think the creature is starved? What? I, I can't tell you. It, except that I felt from the beginning it was in pain and starved. Although why I feel this never occurred to me until you asked. Mm. You really know very little about it, then. I really know nothing at all. Nothing. Help! Help! Get it off me! Keep away! Oh, please! Please! There it is! Let me take a shot at it! No, no! no don't shoot, Rep. Help your wife take care of your daughter. And then meet Ernie and me at the stockade. How is Joan? Oh, the beast tore her arm. Thank the Lord my wife woke up and the thing ran off. But it's not serious. Well, that's something to be thankful for. Here, here's your coffee. Thanks. This will be our last breakfast on this cursed island. We'll strike camp and get away today. I think, Reverend, for the safety of all concerned, it would be better not to leave the island just now. Both Mrs. Manning and I are grateful for your presence, Dr. Carter. But I can't help thinking that perhaps all of our problems would have been solved if you hadn't stopped me when I had the brute in my gun sights. Had you fired and had you killed the thing, you would have committed murder. Murder? Well, now you've got me completely confounded. How can killing this... this thing possibly be murder? Well, this thing, as you refer to it, Reverend, is a man. One of this camping party. A man gone savage. Well, I saw the thing. That was no man. That was a dog or a wolf. Of course. You see, this is a case of modern lycanthropy. Lycanthropy? Werewolves? Those superstitions of the Middle Ages can have no actual significance today. We are face to face with a modern example of what I believe has always been a profound fact. Fact? Oh, come now, Dr. Carter. You've heard of the astral body, or as I prefer to describe it, the fluidic body. It has the power, under certain conditions, of projecting itself and becoming visible to others. Well, aren't you talking about two different things altogether, Doctor? An astral body is something people can accept because it's a human form, not an animal. Yes, that's true. But the fluidic body can assume forms other than human. And such forms will be determined by the dominating thought and wish of the owner. You've lost me. You've never really understood the effect of this primitive camping life upon all the members of your party. Old, old instincts, deeply buried in the subconscious. Instincts no one ever dreamed they had suddenly come forth in a primitive setting. Well, I'm honestly trying to follow you, Doctor, but ancient instincts and atavism are terms which hardly explain a roaming animal with teeth, claws, and a thirst for blood. That last is your term, not mine. But it's a very exact one. I would say that that what we have here is an animal that's impelled to bathe in the very heart's blood of the one it desires. And if I didn't know your reputation, I'd say you have a very strange way of reassuring people. Fear is rooted in ignorance. Reverend, let's suppose that an extremely sensitive young man has fallen very deeply in love with your daughter. 
Back in New York, this moonstruck young fellow isn't taken very seriously by Joan. And he knows it. Nevertheless, he loves. And he knows that, too. Does he know what you're trying to tell me? If you're asking if he's conscious of the change that comes over him, no. Oh, but I still refuse Reverend, to... surely you don't question the violence that's in all mankind. It lurks underneath the surface. And here, on this island, where we shed the trappings of civilization, he feels strong and free. And the feelings of love he's been suppressing back in New York batter at his consciousness, determined to force their way to the surface. And at night, when he sleeps, and his mind is relaxed, he dreams. The beast that ripped Joan's arm was no dream. Granted, but this wild force within him becomes fierce and savage when he sleeps, and his frustration turns into half-devotion, half-beast. And that is the form that his astral body might well assume. Well, if I grant these wild assumptions... Why should I feel easier in my mind? But if you realize that this transformation isn't deliberate, then you can also understand that, well, that it is not necessarily evil. You say that to me after seeing Joan's arm? I tell you that this werewolf is no more than the passionate and fierce instincts of a man, frustrated by day, looking by night for his mate. That night, we built the largest campfire we'd ever had. And all of us retired early. However, Reverend Timothy, Duane, and I had agreed to meet in Duane's tent. I'm going to open the tent flap now. Keep your voices down and strike no matches. Reverend, is the camp asleep? Well, Peter is. I can't answer for the women. I think they're sitting up. Mm, that may be for the best. Could you fill me in on... What we're supposed to be watching for? Is it an animal? Report the least sound to me. And do nothing on your own. Nothing. You understand? Right. All right. Shh. Something out there? I'm not sure. Nelson, you, you stay here. I'll let you know. Timmy and I sat alone for a few minutes, but the good reverend was restless. I don't much care for this waiting game with you and Carter, but... He wouldn't hear of me staying with my family. He said it might prevent something happening. He knows. You must trust him. Well, it's either this astral body or double business, as he calls it, or else it's possession, as described in the Bible. But I'm sure of one thing. Whatever it is, it's bad. And I brought my rifle. You brought your rifle, but Duane said... And my Bible. <sighs> well, one is useless in this situation, and the other is dangerous. The only way we can win in this game is to do what Duane tells us. That's the safest way, believe me. I'm warning you, Ernie. If anything happens to Joan tonight, I'll shoot first and pray afterwards. Now, what the devil is Carter up to? Sneaking around Peter's tent and making gestures. He looks weird, disappearing in and out of the fog. I think Just I... wait, as he told us. Remember, he has the knowledge that we both lack. Well... He seems to be coming back now. Yes, he's heading this way. Peter. Peter is in a very deep sleep. His condition is almost cataleptic. Which means, Doctor? The fluidic body may be released at any moment. Now, I've taken steps to imprison it in the tent. It can't get out until I permit it. 
Be alert for any signs of movement now. I'd better hold on to my rifle. Reverend, I told you there is to be no shooting unless you want a murder. Anything done to the double acts by repercussion on the physical body of the man himself. Now, you better take the cartridges out of that rifle now. All right, Doctor. But I hope and pray you know what you're doing. It was with poor grace that Timmy slipped the cartridges out of his rifle. And then all three of us sat and waited for whatever was to come. It seemed hours. But in reality, it was only a few minutes before we heard it. That's Peter's tent shaking like that, Doctor. It's trying to get out. I hear it. All right, Reverend. Quickly, the women's tent. All right. I'll take my rifle just in case. I can always use it as a club. I urge you, Reverend, to be careful what you do. Because I told you this case is complicated. And it's my belief that your daughter and Peter are made for each other. And I think she knows it every bit as much as he does. Men in love have been known to do foolish things. An English monarch gave up a throne for love. And we've heard of men who turned themselves inside out just to please their beloved. But uh, for me at any rate, this is the first time I've heard of a lover turning himself into a werewolf. I'll be back with Act Three in just a moment. Theater returns on WABC. Statistically, there are more people who claim to have sighted UFOs than there are those who claim to have seen ghosts. But the lowest of all in number are those who claim to have experienced the numbing terror of having come face to face with a werewolf. Come along with me now as we share that experience with one of the few who have seen and dealt with that dread creature. From where Duane and I stood, it was less than 20 feet to Peter Sangri's tent. And although the wind had freshened considerably, it wasn't the wind that was making the canvas of his tent swell and shake. That shaking was caused by something inside the tent trying to get out. The hair on the nape of my neck rose. As we approached the tent, Duane held up his hand. Ernie. Ernie, I want you to see it before I release it. So that if anything untoward should happen, you may be able to deal with it without me. But, Duane, you reassured the Reverend. You said that if Ernie, you know that we're dealing with tremendous forces that are still only partially understood. What do you want me to do? Well, as we approach the tent... I want you to kneel down and tell me what you see when I hold the flap back. All right. There's something in there, all right. But you must be able to see it and describe it before I'll chance releasing it. As my eyes became accustomed to the dim interior of the tent, I could make out Sangri's form lying under the blankets while over him and around him flew a dark mass. All I could make out was a pointed muzzle and sharp ears plainly visible against the sides of the tent, and I also caught an occasional gleam of fiery eyes and white fangs. There's nothing to fear. I told you that before. How are you... How are you holding that... that thing there? There are some things I don't think you should know, Ernie. But I'll only tell you that it has to do with electrical impulses from the mind. You see, we all emanate a certain amount of electricity and, well, just think of it as brain waves. Now step back a little now because I'm going to release it. What'll it do? Hopefully it will listen to me 
and I will be able to guide it. And if it doesn't? We'll cross that bridge if and when we come to it. Now step back. Keep your eyes fixed on the tent flap. Ebony, watch closely. And then I saw it. An animal. Neck and muzzle thrust forward. An animal about the size of a calf, leaner than a mastiff. And yet, Peter was easily recognizable. It was the head of an animal. But the face, it was Peter Sangree. Sangree, it is werewolf double. What do we do now? Well, I'll try to speak with him. Sangree, Peter Sangree, do you recognize me? Do you realize what it is that you really desire when you assume this form? Sangree, you must listen to me. Good Lord, Duane, can that be? Of course. A mating call. You shouldn't be surprised. It is probably Joan. You must remember she practically told you that she was afraid of something deep down in her. But she's not... The only salvation for both Joan and Peter is for me to lead Sangree's double to the object for which it yearns. Listen, that's coming from across the lagoon. Duane, Peter's double, a werewolf. He's gone. Although my eyes had been fixed upon the animal in front of the tent, somehow it disappeared. One moment it was there, muzzle lifted, sniffing the wind, and then it was gone, like a thing of the wind and a trick of vision. Quickly, Ernie, start following through the trees. Where will you be? I must check out Peter's tent. Why? What for? To make sure that his werewolf double cannot return until I permit it. I'll join you in a few moments. After circling Peter's tent, Duane caught up to me and we ran at full speed through the woods, always guided by the now fairly loud howling. And then suddenly the trees fell away and we were on the edge of the lagoon. And there, sharply defined against sea and sky, Joan! Ernie, stand still and remain quiet. But there's something wrong with her. She looks half asleep. She is fully asleep and we must not wake her. What are you saying? She's sleepwalking. If we wake her, the shock might injure her permanently. But the werewolf! What will... She's I... on her way to meet him. You see, she's been irresistibly drawn to him from the beginning. Well, then how do you explain the torn tent the other night and the wounds on her arm? Wasn't she asleep then? Not deeply enough. She awoke and was terrified instead of pleased. Now, however, she's in a deep enough sleep to throw off the conventional shackles of civilization that have bound her and admit this man is her mate. Then she really loves Peter? Yes, profoundly. The canoe just coming around the point. Isn't that, isn't that Reverend Timothy? Yes, it is. What's he doing here? Probably following Joan. At least he had the sense to take the canoe and not wake her. But what will he do when he... Ernie, says... you're right. We're going to have to warn him. It's too late. There goes Peter's double. Quick, get to Joan. The Reverend's got a gun. But you made him unload it. He's got hold of a pistol. Hand aside, Joan. Out of my line of fire. Put that gun down, you fool. Put it... Oh, idiot. Ernie, get to Joan. Help her. What? What are all of you doing here? Where's Peter? Where is he? Oh, thank the Lord. Joni, you're all right. Where'd Peter go? He disappeared so suddenly. He cried out that he was hurt. We hope that he wasn't hurt seriously. I hope the brute's dead. Don't ever say that, Reverend. Unless you want murder on your soul. Murder? Why do you use that word? If anyone's done anything to him, then he's done it to me, too. Because Peter is... I know, I know, my dear. He's your love. And I think we can bring him to you. Or perhaps you to him. But we must go to your tent... And wait for me. Now, Ernie, take care of her until I get back. Reverend, you better come with me. While Ju 
Wayne and the Reverend went off together. I helped Joan back to her tent. You must let me go to him, Mr. Simpson. I know he needs you me. You heard Duane. He said we should wait for him. Uh, I, I didn't know until tonight. That you love Peter. Yes. Duane knew that days ago. That's why we were there watching tonight and hoping that everything would go as we thought. And I think it would have, but for... Go on. But for what? But for an unfortunate happening. It was my father, wasn't it? Now, Joan, I think you should stay calm. It was Dad. He did something that... Something that hurt Peter. Hurt him badly. And now he's lost, and so am I. You mustn't despair. <laughs> Everything will be different when Duane gets here. Oh, where is he? I think he's with your father, and I believe that they're both looking for Peter. Well, we should be helping him. Sometimes, Please. Joan, we help best by doing nothing. Oh. Trust me, Joan. Trust Duane. I'm sure that he'll be able to handle this. Reverend, pray that we're in time to help Peter's double return to Peter's physical body. Will that help, Joan? I think so. Now hold it. Now what? He hasn't been back to the tent. Excuse me just a moment. What are you doing? Arranging it so that if Peter's double does make it back here, he can get into the tent and back into Peter's body. More of your mumbo-jumbo. I'm trying to save a life you almost snuffed out. I saved my daughter's life. Her life was never in danger. I saw that beast throw itself at my Joan. I hadn't fired when I did. You would have seen a miracle. A transformation in that beast and in your daughter. Dr. Carter, I know your reputation, Reverend, but... I think we should stop quarreling. Both of us want the same thing. And this isn't doing either Joan or Peter any good. Now, I'm going to need your help. Well, you know I'll do anything I can. All right. But what I'm going to ask you to do, Reverend, will go against your every instinct. I'm going to ask for your belief, Reverend. In what? In the fact that the double you saw, the werewolf, if you like, meant your daughter no harm. And above all, the fact that he must return to Peter's physical body. Why do you need my help for that? Because you shot him. And although I know he meant Joan no harm, I also know that Sangri must possess other instincts of the wolf, and those instincts will be crying for revenge. Are you telling me that I... I'm not telling you anything, Reverend. I'm asking you to serve as a stalking horse, to bring Peter within reach, and then, then, to believe that I can handle it. not going to have any second thoughts about being unarmed. I gave you my word, Carter. Let's get on with it. You go fetch Ernest. I'll be all right in that short time. I'm sure the Lord is watching over me. Let's hope he's watching over all of us. Ernie. Ernie. Come on out. Did you find Sangri? Not yet. How is Joan? She's restless. She's unhappy, but I think under control. Oh, good. Now, I think Peter knows the Reverend fired the shot that hurt him and is trailing him to get revenge. I've got the Reverend standing on a promontory over there. If the werewolf comes, I think I can gain control over him and get him back into Peter's body. I hope so. For all our sakes, I hope so. Peter! Oh, Peter! Joan! Joan, come back here! Let her go. We'll follow her. She'll lead us to him. Carter! Did you hear it? We're coming, Reverend. Hold on. No! Peter! Oh, Peter. Peter, I love you. 
There, it goes into Peter's tent. Let's hope it's in time. What about the Reverend? Joan will take care of him. Peter's the important one now. He's alive. Yes, but look. Those marks on his face. Are they gunshot wounds? They are, they are. The Reverend aimed well. The shots went through his cheeks. Oh, he'll carry the scars for the rest of his life. It was Joan who stopped him. Joan's voice and his love for her. I'm not sure that I would have been able to head him off. I... I've been hurt. My face. It burns. You're going to be... Just fine. Peter, my love. Joan, you're not frightened of me? Of course not. At first I was. I I didn't really understand. But now I know that I belong with you. And I'll be with you, always. My face. Don't touch it. Joan, you bathe the wounds with clean water. And they'll heal naturally. Of course. And... Dr. Carter, thank you. Ernest, I think we're superfluous around here now. Right, Joan? That's right. Dr. Carter, my father has more need of you now than either Peter or I. And Joan's words proved to be true and not true. As Duane and I came close to Timmy's tent, we heard a voice, the voice of a man praying fervently, praying to his God for forgiveness. And so this tale of a man who unconsciously used a werewolf to further his love's ambitions ended happily. And I no longer flaunt my skepticism. However, I must in all truth say that it's not really the recommended way to go courting, even in today's permissive atmosphere. I'll be back shortly. Magicians are well aware that people love illusion. They want to be fooled. I wonder if any of the great magicians ever wondered why there's such a universal love for magical tricks that seem utterly beyond belief. It's my fancy that we love illusion because we live in hopes that someday something magical will happen to all of us. Our cast included Mason Adams, Norman Rose, Marion Seldes, Christopher Tabori, and Guy Sorrell. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams.
clicks. The Eversharp Chick Injector Razor, made by Eversharp. Manufacturers of Eversharp Chick Injector Razors and Blades and famous Eversharp Precision Writing Instruments. Hideous things come out of the darkness to prowl the tortured earth. Evil hands stretch forth to seize. Evil eyes are watching. Unholy voices whisper and quarrel in the fearful silence. Death stalks. Loathsome, horrible death. Dare you put out your lights and listen to Boris Karloff in the story of horror in the deepening darkness? Dare you listen to... Lights out! I'm glad you brought up the question of ethics, Ed. Sometimes I think science is too ethical. Stands in the way of research. I don't know, David. Take your work, for example. It's wonderful, but you have to be very cautious. I think working with monkeys is about as far as you should go right now. Oh, but, Ed, David is past that stage. Why not show Ed the one you worked on today, darling? If you'd like to see it, Ed, it's right in the lab. Yes, I would. I saw it last night after you injected the poison. (laughs) I'll get it, David. Thank you, dear. It's in the second cage. Mm, Ruth's a wonderful girl, David. Must be a big help to you in your work. Don't know what I'd do without her. But if she ever gets too interested in pure science, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to lock her out of the lab and just make her go back to being a wife. <laughs> How do you find time for a wife? Now, look here. All you practicing surgeons think the research man is a machine. Not me, Ed. Ruth means more to me than all the discoveries I might make. Her happiness is all I live and work for. Well, I can't say that I blame him. She's a very charming person. Ah, Here he is. Same one you saw last night, Ed. Stone dead. And there he is, just as healthy and alive as any other monkey. Why, it's amazing, David. Naturally, I've followed all the experiments along this line, but you seem to have progressed much farther. David can't go any farther with animals. He's ready for the next step. And he can do it. Well, I'm all for research, David. But you have a moral obligation in this sort of thing. How do you know it'll work with human beings? Oh, you're a surgeon yourself, Ed. You know that human beings are animals just like all the subjects I've used. I know it'll work. Well, knowing it won't get you far with society, you'll have to submit proof. I know that. And I've tried every way I can think of to get a human being to demonstrate on. He's tried insane asylums, penitentiaries, everywhere. No one will listen to me. Well, in a way, you can't blame them. Even to me, with my training, the idea seems, well, blasphemous. My dear Ed, you can't stop scientific progress because of a so-called moral concept. Besides, what could be less blasphemous than a triumph over death? (laughs) I'm sorry, but I can't see it that way. I wouldn't want to try it on me. When I'm dead, I want to stay dead. Oh, that's foolish, Ed. If I die first, I want David to use me for a subject. (laughs) Don't look so startled, Ed. She's always been my strongest supporter. But I'm not going to use her as a subject. I like her too well as a wife. (laughs) Still, it gives me the shivers to hear you talk that way, Ruth. Why? I've seen David's work grow to where the technique is perfect. Before long, his experiments will be recognized by the whole medical world. And if I can help him achieve that goal, I'm willing to do anything. Living or dead. I mean it.
said she wanted to do it, Ed. Living or dead. David, you're surely not going to hold it to that. Not now. Of course I am. She meant it. But I called you over here tonight, Ed, because I need help. Don't tell me that. But I want you to help me bring Ruth's... To bring her here? That's exactly what I mean. David... Will you help me? Or must I bribe some stranger? David, why don't you give this thing up? It's... It's inhuman. Ed, if I succeed, I'll have Ruth back. Don't you see how much it means? Well, yes, if you're successful. Oh, I've no doubt about that. Look, I've got my laboratory record. 714 times I performed the experiment on guinea pigs, rabbits, monkeys. 714 times it's been successful. Don't you see? But, David, this is no laboratory experiment. Ruth was your wife. She is my wife. The only woman I ever loved. That's why I want to bring her back here and start her breathing and living again. There's an ugly name for what you're asking me to do, David. I know. Grave robbery. But there's a better name for it, Ed. Death robbery. We'll rob old man death. Kick the door shut. Uh, on the operating table. I must say you are completely equipped. It's surgery, just as well as a lab. Everything we need is here. There. Well, it's done. Not yet. You mean you want me to stay? Ed, listen. Ever since Ruth... Well, I guess I've leaned on you for everything. I won't ask you to stay, but I do need you. Just a little longer. All right, David. I'll stay. Ruth will be the first to thank you when we succeed. David, I'll always doubt this until I see Ruth living, breathing, smiling again. It won't be long. Just a matter of 15 or 20 minutes. If nothing happens. What will you do if your operation doesn't work? Then you'll have just one more job to do as my friend. And that? Will be to bury both of us. Oh, now, look, David. If Ruth isn't alive again within a few minutes, I'll have lost her forever. And I'll have proved that my whole life's work is useless. I'll have reason enough to use any of a dozen tricks that any good surgeon knows. End the whole business. Oh, but don't look so horrified, Ed. We won't fail. Let's begin. I should remind you once more, David, that you're usurping powers that belong to God Almighty. I like to think that Providence has wisely held back the knowledge of things like this until we knew how to use them. And I know how. Hand me that large beaker. All right. I'm not going to back out on you, David. What shall I do? Do. You'll work as you haven't worked in surgery before. Thank heavens I've got your skill on my side. Now then, first strap the spigot manometer on her arm. I just happened to think of something. Keep moving. This is all a matter of timing. Yeah, but, David... Here are your instruments. I want the incision right here where I'm shaving the hair. Make a small incision just at the fontanelle while I prepare the solution. David, have you considered... Please work fast. But Dave, what? She was embalmed, you know. Of course I know that. I have something to replace the blood and to counteract the fluid. It's ghastly. Finish the cut. I know what I'm doing. Well, that's all for the incision, but after all... Work nice. Now cut away the dura mater. Entirely? 
Leave the brain exposed? Yes, yes, I'll fix that. I've done it 700 odd times. This is no guinea pig or monkey. Well, I hardly need reminding. Sorry. What's that? A compound I've synthesized myself. What is it? I call it digamma paradiamine. Oh, I know that isn't chemically correct. It's as close as I can get to it. I knew that something like it must exist. Took three years to track it down. Took me that long to make the first drop of it. You know what you're doing, all right? Yes, I do. Now, if you're finished, take the leads from that storage battery there and attach the positive to the silver plate on the shelf. Put that at her feet. I feel as if I were doing something unholy. Place the tip of the negative in the incision you made in the skull. Be sure the tip of the wire actually... actually penetrates the pyamata. David, what if you bring her back? I will bring her back. But what if you bring her back and find she comes back without her soul? What? Her soul? Yes. You're a surgeon, and you believe in a soul? Well, I hesitate to say there is no such thing. You've seen a good many deaths, haven't you? Have you ever seen any evidence that the soul escapes at death? Perhaps I couldn't recognize the evidence. Put it this way, then. If there is any soul, it either leaves the body or stays with it at death. Now, no reputable surgeon or physician has ever been able to report the slightest evidence of the soul's having left the body. So, the soul, if there is a soul, must stay with the body, a part of it. I'm ready now. If you've finished. Everything's set. Good. Close that switch then at the battery. Watch the meter and keep the current between plus and minus five of 150. There's a rheostat on the edge of the table. All right? All right. Now, I'm going to inject 10 cc's of adrenaline in the brachial artery. Adrenaline? Adrenaline and something else. There. God, she's beautiful, eh? Yes. She was. She is. You'll see her in a few minutes, just as she was. I wonder what you'll have to tell us. Nothing. Death is only a transcendental sleep. Do you really believe that? Oh, well, what's the difference? How's the current? Let's see. What? Let's jump to 180. Good. Bring it back to 150. That's the result of the injection. On a dead body? Let's say suspended animation. There are still a few things in surgery you don't know, aren't there? I never dreamed of a reaction like that. I'll show you more. Help me swing this lamp over here. But let the ammeter go. It'll hold steady for a minute now. But it might jump again. No, it won't. I've been all through this before. The reactions are exactly the same as the others. Well, this lamp, X-rays? No, it's a modification of the cathode ray. And just another of my developments. I call these our theta rays. Why do you call them that? Well, most rays are named for the first few letters in the Greek alphabet, alpha, beta, gamma, and so on. Well, that explains theta. Didn't you say R theta? Yes. But theta was called the letter of death by the ancient Greeks. Well, that's right. It was the first letter in the word thanatos. Death. Yeah, I see. A theta without death. <laughs> Maybe I was too sentimental. Maybe. At least human for once. Let's not argue. Here goes the ray. Now, quickly. The solution. Injected? No, pump it. I built this pump especially for it. There's the pump switch, Ed. Here? Yeah. Turn it on and watch the air meter. Okay. It's jumping. 
How far? 155. Let it go. 160. 170. Hold it there. It'll stay there now. Listen carefully. Yes. As soon as I turn off the pump, I want stigma readings. But there won't be any blood pressure. Wait and see. Give me a reading each time I ask for it and take them carefully. Are you ready? That's fantastic. I'm ready. Okay. Reading. Systolic zero. Diastolic zero. That's all right. It'll take a few seconds. Now. Forty. My God. Diastolic. Hurry. Zero. My orbit valve is still open. I'll turn off the ray. Reading. Forty-eight. Over forty-two. David, not yet. Now the stopwatch. Seven seconds after I say go, I want the systolic. May you have it? Right. Ready. Now... Go. Sixty. Go. Just what it should be. Lord. Look at my hand. I don't wonder. Ruth, darling, just a few more minutes. All right, Ed. Now the ray again. We'll know the answer very soon. The second act of Lights Out, starring Boris Karloff, will follow in just a moment. But now, listen to the sweetest shaving song ever written. Push-pull, click-click. Changes blades that quick. Push-pull, click-click. With the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor. Yes, it clicks for men everywhere. Because the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor is the world's one and only razor with the automatic blade changer. No blades to unwrap. Fingers never touch the blade. Just push-pull, click-click. And a keen new blade is automatically locked in correct shaving position instantly. It clicks because the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor makes shaving 50% faster, 100% safer, 200% smoother. Just try the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor for one week. See for yourself the difference. It's a $1.75 value. Special now, only $1.25, complete with 20 blades. For the shave of your life, the rest of your life, switch to an Eversharp Schick Injector Razor. Get yours tomorrow. Push-pull, click-click. Buy an Eversharp Schick. How long do you use the ray this time, David? Not long. Give me a reading. 68. Over 67. Now. 70. Diastolic. 68. Now. 
David. 118. 76. Close. Now. 120. That's it. 80. The stethoscope. Quick. Here. Listen. I can tell. Respiration's normal. Pulse just a tiny bit fast. And reflex is slow, but apparently all right. David, I... I feel I must apologize to you. Apologize? Why? Well, for doubting you, I suppose. <laughs> you learn to believe me. Very calm in the face of all this. Do you realize that you've performed a miracle? A miracle? I brought my wife back to me. As I promised her. It's... It's an unholy thing, but... But we've conquered death. Is that unholy? We have conquered death. May God forgive us. She'll only wait now. How long has she been asleep? Let me see. Eleven hours. She hasn't spoken at all? Not since that first scream. When she fell asleep. Have you given her anything? Just a few drops of brandy. Have you tried to wake her? No, but... I think I'll try now. Oh, wait a minute before you do. Why? Well, I hate to keep harping on this business about a soul, David... I realize this is no place for a philosophic discussion, but I can't help wondering why Ruth screamed when she first came back to life. I think there's a logical explanation. After all, it must have been a physical shock. That's true. It must also be true that there was a great mental shock involved. I think that's why she screamed, and I'm wondering whether there's been a permanent effect on her mind. Long as I prefer to think of it, her soul. Oh, you're simply borrowing trouble, Ed. I've never seen any sign of permanent damage in my other experiments. Don't forget that Ruth was a human being. Well, there's only one way to find out. I'm going to wait. You're not afraid? Afraid? Of what? Ruth? Ruth? Wake up, darling. Ruth, dear, it's David speaking. Wake up, dearest. Ruth. Ruth. Oh, darling. No wonder it's scared a poor girl. Ruth, it's it's David, dear. I kept my promise and you're alive again. Oh, you're all right, honey. It's David, you're you're Ruth. David, what's the matter? God is her mind. No, David. Her soul. David, you'd better go out for a little exercise now. I'll stay here with her. I'll stay while you go out and walk around a bit. You've been there with her since 8 o'clock last night without any letter. Go on, I'll stay. Ed. I know, old boy. I'd give anything myself if we could undo what we've done, but... Ed, what can I do? Well, there may be something. Let's try an experiment when she wakes up again. What kind of an experiment? Well, let's see if we can talk to her, get her to say anything. If we can get a flicker of intelligence, maybe we can teach her, build up from a small fragment. Maybe it might work. 
I'm going to wake her up and try it. But not now. Why don't you take a walk? Relax a little. And get something to eat while you're out. Eat, I can't eat. I'm going to wake her. Ruth. Ruth. David. Why not let her sleep? She's waking up now. Ruth. Hello, Ruth. Are you waking up? Poor child. Poor child. There, she repeats after me. A little. Maybe it will work, Ed. Ruth. Ruth. David. David. It works. Seems to. Ruth, say I want a glass of water. Seems to. <laughs> I want a glass of water. Water. It's too long for a... Ruth. Say, Ruth. Ruth. Loves. David. David. <laughs> Ruth loves David. Ruth loves David. Ruth loves David. Ruth loves David. <laughs> it's working, eh? Maybe. But what is she thinking? I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> Ruth, stop it. Stop it. Wait a minute, old man. Too much for you, tired as you are. Go on, I'll take a little walk, and I'll work with it for a while. Your nerves won't take much of this. Oh, I guess Stop. you're right, Ed. I can't take it anymore. I'll be right there. Fine, fine. I'll take good care of you. See what I can find out. Be patient. Don't worry. I will. And you get something to eat while you're out. All right, I'll try. Poor guy, this is really rough on him. Rough on him! Ruth. Kidding ourselves, there's nothing there. She's a parrot. Never mind, Ruth. Ruth, put on that scalpel. Scalpel! You'll hurt yourself. Ruth, stay away. Don't put it down. Think of David. David! God's sake, what happened? Ruth. Scalpel. I'll get something and fix you right up. Wait. No use. Now look. Doctor. Artery. No hope. Ed. All right, Doctor. Your diagnosis is correct. A minute or two left. Ruth's hiding. Watch out. No, no soul. She'll kill you, too. What have I done, Ed? Everything I've done is wrong. Wonderful technique, Doctor. Congratulations. What about soul? Ed. Ed. Ruth. She's somewhere in the house. What if she gets out with a scalpel in her hands? There's been enough damage. Ruth! Ruth! Patient, I'd better take a gun. Ruth! Ruth!
Ruth, now give me that scalpel. You'll hurt yourself. Ruth. Ruth, come back. Come back! Yes? Oh. Hello, Doctor. Well, I've been busy in the lab. No. No, there's nothing new. Just an experiment. No. Like so many experiments, it, it just didn't work out. Ever Sharp Shake has just presented Boris Karloff in the first of the new series of mystery and terror stories, Lights Out. Good evening, dear listeners. I am Barnabas Collins. I hope you will forgive the intrusion, and I hope that you have been enjoying Broken Sea Audio Productions' OTR Swagcast. Please allow me to introduce the next haunting episode of Dark Shadows. of appearing where I least expect you. My being here isn't that unexpected, and obviously you find this house and uh, what's in it quite uh, fascinating. I find Barnabas Collins a very interesting and perceptive man. He certainly seems to know what's going on. But, Dave, I, I don't want to keep you any longer from whatever it is you have to do. I'm sure you don't. Good night, George. What happened? What did the two of you talk about? He's very close to knowing the truth about me, Doctor. And when he does... Barnabas, don't allow yourself to get upset about nothing. I don't consider my life nothing. What exactly did he say that disturbed you? He asked me certain questions that I would have preferred he hadn't asked. You must have answered them well, because he seemed to know nothing when I spoke to him. Do you really believe that? I 
believes that he may have some vague suspicions of something, but he has no proof of anything. Dr. Hoffman, my existence has been one at a great cost. It is very precious to me. It's very important to me, too, Marcus. Well, I can't just dismiss Dr. Woodard's presence here with a careless wave of the hand. I must know his every secret, just as he strives to know mine. Now, what is it that he knows thus far? I told you, nothing. Yes, one thing he knows is you. How long has he known you since medical school? Yes. He knows you're a doctor. He knows, therefore, that something in this house interests you medically. Oh, I don't think you should assume that. Now, stop thinking like a woman and start thinking like a doctor. All right. Suppose he does know that something medically interests me here in the house. What what other thing? The first question is what? The second question is who? And several questions later, our Dr. Woodard will manage somehow to find out about your experiments. He won't. It could happen like that. And if it does, he knows something else. If you are experimenting, you are keeping notes of your experiments. You are, aren't you? Well, yes. Then I want you to destroy them. Destroy them? Why? Why, why do you think? I don't want him to find them. Oh, he couldn't possibly find them. How do you know that? Because they're locked in a strong box in my room. Believe me, the notes are complete. I'm telling you that I am not safe as long as they exist. Dr. Woodard will never get those notes. In the first place, he couldn't begin to think of where to look for them. I would like to believe that, Doctor. I would very much like to believe that. Oh, Barnabas, you must believe that. You know I wouldn't do anything to jeopardize your existence. Sarah. What about Sarah? He knows about it. He said, I saw your sister Sarah tonight. He said it that way? Yes, very matter-of-factly. What did you do? When he said it, I looked at him as though he were mad, utterly mad. Then I felt myself growing pale, and I forced the blood back into my cheeks so he wouldn't suspect how near to panic I was. Poor Barnabas. Yes, poor Barnabas. Forced to deny the one of the two things in this whole world that matters to him most. Wherever you are, Little Sarah, forgive me for having denied you, for not being able to look at him and speak the truth. Yes, Dr. Woodard, Sarah Collins is my sister, and the dearest creature that ever walked this earth.
Hello, Becky. You're back early? That's wonderful. No, not so wonderful. I'm back early because I have to go away again. Oh? When do you have to go? And why? Well, in a few days. And for the usual reasons, business. I may have to be gone for a couple of weeks this time. Oh. Where are you going? To South America. Too far away. Oh, it isn't really. Well, it is to me. I guess that's because I, I've never been very many places. Well, I've got news for you. You're going to do a lot of traveling after we get married. And you know something, Vicky? South America could, could seem a lot closer to Collinsport if we could set a date before I leave. Look, I told you I can't do it. I can't do it until I know that David is there. But you also said something about David's being very fond of both of us, which he is. I don't think he'd want to be the reason we're being kept apart. But he's not the reason. I am. Don't you see, Brooke? I, I can't say to you, all right, let's get married next week or next month until I know that next week or next month David's going to be himself again. Mrs. I didn't realize you were here. I'm sorry to intrude. Oh, no, you're not intruding. Burke and I were just... Quarreling. No, not really. Forgive me. I came in here to find a book, and instead I find two people who made a great deal to me unhappy because of all of us. You mustn't feel responsible for old Caleb Collins and his crazy will. No, but I'm somewhat responsible for David. Mrs. Stoddard, it's my decision to, to postpone the wedding and... And that's all there is to it. Well, in that case, I think it's time for me to make a decision, too. What kind of a decision? Well, I've been thinking about it for several days, but I <clears throat> hesitated mentioning it because I didn't know how you'd react to the offer. Offer? But seeing you unhappy, well, whether you accept the offer or not, I'll have made it and I'll feel better about it. As you know, the West Wing of Collingwood has been closed for many years. But I thought if you and Burke would like to live there after you're married, I I'd be happy to open it up for you. West Wing for us to live in? Live in how, Liz? I don't understand. Well, of course I couldn't sell it to you because it's part of this house. But it's a completely independent unit. And certainly as big as any house you might find. So, if you want to, you're more than welcome to live there until the house you want is available. That would be wonderful. And I assure you, there won't be any strange old Collins wills tucked away in closets to prevent your moving in at the last minute. What about strange old Collins skeletons? Any of those tucked away in the closet? Oh, Burke, I think it's the best thing all the way around. You and Vicky could get married and have a place to live. And be near to David. Very near to David, but far enough away to guarantee complete privacy. I want you to understand that. Please. Yes, I think I understand that. Well, that's the offer. I, I guess there's nothing more to say. Oh, Mr. it's the most wonderful offer I've ever heard. My friend here is a very emotional girl. Well, why don't you both sing it over? Yes, we'll do that. And we'll let you know our decision as soon as possible. And thanks, Liz. Not at all. Nothing. Why? You acted as though there was something very suspicious in her offer to us. Because I, I didn't say yes right away. I wanted time to think about it, that's all. I would have said yes right away. Yes, I know. Well, I don't know what there is to think about. But you're not going to turn off that offer down, are you? I don't know. 
There are certain aspects about the situation I'm not sure I want to get involved in. Like what? Like you're working for the people we rent the house from. Bert, you know as well as I do that I'm more than just an employee to the Collins family. You'd still be on call 24 hours a day. I think that's a little bit difficult when you have a husband to think about. Well, what do you suggest we do? Move to South America? I know you think I'm being unreasonable and demanding. But it's just that I... I feel that no matter who else we have in mind, we have to think of what's best for us, for you and me. I... I know that. And, and I do. Burke, I want to be your wife. But I, I don't see why I have to prove it by moving away. I can live anywhere and still be your wife. I, I can't explain it, Vicky. It's just something I feel and, and don't like. Do you mean to tell me that, that your main reason for not wanting to live in the West Wing is, is a feeling? We'll call it instinct. Or a fear that... that all of the, the terrible things that have happened to the Collins family might happen to us. You're the one that used to, to tease me about my instincts and, and forebodings. You, the, the one who was so practical and logical, who never got caught up in the past and only lived in the present. Perk, look at you. Do you know what happens to pretty girls who laugh at first that one, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> I love your laughter. Don't ever let anything happen that will stop you from laughing. be a great mistake to underestimate the situation. It's very serious for us and for Wooden. In order to know just how serious it is, we must find out just how much Dr. Wooden knows, particularly about Sarah. How do we do that? We don't. You do. By asking you. But he'll get suspicious if I ask him questions. He's already suspicious. He's suspicion itself. And he's sure to go on probing and poking around until he learns too much. All right, I'll go and talk to him. Doctor. Yes? You said earlier that Dr. Woodard was the most brilliant student in your class at medical school. You were being generous. Actually, I think he was the second most brilliant student. Well, they didn't take me as seriously as they should have, because I'm a woman. My dear, that can be a mixed blessing. Can't you dropped by, Julia. I've been thinking about you. Well, I've been thinking about you, too, Dave. And particularly what you said about little Sarah Collins. What about her? Oh, I know I seemed rather skeptical about your theory that she exists in ectoplasmic form. Materializing as a ghost, you mean? Well, you must admit it's a rather startling thing to hear, and I suppose I was... Startled and concerned for me. How very sweet of you, Julia. Of course I was concerned for you, Dave. We're old friends. We've known each other for a long time. 
long enough for me to know that when you say you believe in something... Even a ghost. ...that I must trust your belief. Now, I want you to tell me exactly what you know about little Sarah Collins and why you think she's a ghost and what possible connection she could have with Barnabas Collins. I'm very touched by your faith in me, Julia, but as a matter of fact, you weren't wrong. What... what you mean? Well, it's very strange. You've had a change of heart and come around to my way of thinking, and I I've had a change of heart and come around to your way of thinking. My way of thinking? Yes, I've given much too time, much too much time and thought to this old Sarah Collins business. I... I don't understand. Julia, do you suppose we forget Sarah Collins for now and, and talk about you? Me? Yes, I'm very curious as to exactly what you're doing with Barnabas Collins. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, Julia, you led me to believe that you had some interest in him now. What kind of interest could that be to, uh... Produce a list like this. What is that? It's a list of medical supplies, Julia, that you ordered recently. Where did you get it? I'm a friend of the Hollywell Pharmaceutical Company. But why? I suddenly found myself very disturbed by whatever it is you're doing up there at the old house. I wanted to know more about it, so I picked up the phone and made a call. I like to think I was doing it for your own good. I suppose it's my turn to thank you for your concern. Julia, there's something I don't like about this list. There's something about it that's very irregular. I'd like you to tell me what it is. Dave, if you wanted to know what I was doing down at the old house, you didn't have to waste your time by contacting a medical concern. You could have asked me. If I ask you, will you tell me now? Yes, but... It, it isn't easy. Why not? Well, because... It's never easy for a woman to admit that she's making a fool of herself over a man. What do you mean? Dave, I, I don't have to draw diagrams, do I? Besides, it's not news to you. You guessed it yourself some time ago. Guessed, uh, what? That, that I'm, I'm emotionally involved with Barnabas Collins. When I'm, I'm with him, I don't think of myself as a doctor at all, but only as a woman. And how does, how does he feel of you? Well, he thinks of me as a woman, too. And yes, I, I can understand that, but I, I feel somehow, Julia, particularly when I look at this list, that you're also important to him as a doctor as well. Now, I'd like to know why. Very personal matter. Julia, look, I'm a doctor, too. I'm sure I'll understand the reason, whatever it is. No, I I don't think you can, Dave. And I think it would be best for you if you stopped asking me about it. Best for me? Why? Because you... you you're, you're probing too far into an area that you don't understand... If you don't know the chance you're taking. If you did, you... If I did? What? Dave, for your own good. 
don't ask me any more questions. Don't, don't ask anyone any more questions. Julia, threatening me? I, I'm just warning you as a friend. Just stop now before it's too late. Dark Shadows is a Dan Curtis production. Upon this night, there is one who knows a desperation with each passing moment. For there is a man who suspects his dangerous secret. And before this night is over, he may be exposed and destroyed. And what did he say? Enough to frighten me. What do you mean? He knows I'm conducting experiments on you. What? He found out I've been ordering medical supplies. He wanted to know what they were for. Well, what did you tell him? I told him you have a rare blood disease I'm trying to cure. Why did you tell him that? telling something. He doesn't know what the experiments are, but he thinks that I'm a doctor treating a patient. Well, didn't he ask you why you were doing it so secretly? Yes. I told him you didn't want your family to know that you were ill. Well, did he believe that? I'm not sure. You're not sure? I'm not going to lie to you, Barnabas. I, I'm not sure what he believes. Next thing... You'll be telling me that Wooded poses no threats. No. This time I'm frightened, Barnabas. Dave behaves as if he's on to something. And if he is, this could mean the end of everything for both of us.
How could you let this happen? How could I keep him from finding out about the medical supplies? You might have been a bit cleverer about obtaining them. They had to be signed for. There was no other way to obtain them. What are we going to do about it? Well, first, we must burn your notes. No! We must. What if Woodard or anyone else, for that matter, finds out about them? How, how can anyone find them? They're under lock and key in my room. No one owes they even exist. Well, someone might find them. How? Well, I don't know. But Dr. Woodard is already suspicious. He doesn't know about the notes. There's no way he could know. How long has he been suspicious? Not long. Well, he must have wondered why you didn't leave Collinwood after Willie was captured. He had a theory about that. What theory? Well, it... One time he accused me of caring for you. Caring for me? Yes. And what did you tell him? I told him I did. And he believed that? Yes. How absurd. Woodard is a bigger fool than I thought he was. Don't find that very so preposterous? What do you mean? Never mind. I haven't time to talk nonsense. I haven't had a chance to arrange with those notes and they're, they're a danger to me. We must get them and destroy them. It isn't necessary. Nobody can get to them. Nobody. Oh, Dr. Woodard. Mrs. Johnson. I uh, just dropped by to see young David. Oh, well, I'll tell Mrs. Stoddard you're here. Uh, that won't be necessary, Mrs. Johnson. I'll uh, speak to her after I've seen David. All right. Is uh, Miss Hoffman here? No, she went out. She said she'd be out most of the evening. Ah, I see. Yes, she goes out most every evening. I don't know where she goes, and I guess it's not my concern. <laughs> Is uh, David in his room? Yes. That's the last door on the left down the hall, isn't it? No, that's Miss Hoffman's room. Yes, I see. David's is the first door on the right. Oh, of course it is, yes. I sure hope you find out what's wrong with him. He's been acting so strange lately. Well, I, I hope to know a great deal more after tonight. Tonight? Yes, tonight. Uh, tonight may be the night when a lot of questions are answered. Well, excuse me, Mrs. Johnson.
Liz, have you taken leave of your senses? No, Roger, I haven't. Burke Devlin living here? Surely you can't be serious. I'm perfectly serious. The West Wing is going to waste. Why shouldn't Vicky and Burke live there after their marriage? Have you forgotten who he is? He was out to destroy this family and almost succeeded. That was in the past. We're on good terms now. Well, you may be on good terms with him, but I'm not. I won't tolerate his staying here. It is not your decision to make. Now I've decided to let Burke and Vicky have the West Wing if they want it, so there's no use arguing about it. Liz, you've got to listen. Roger. I want to talk to you. Will you come to the drawing room? Oh. oh Mrs. Howder. Yes? Oh, Dr. Woodard's here. He's upstairs with David now. Oh. And he's been here about a half hour, so uh, he'll be down soon. Thank you. Come on, Liz. I have a few more things to say to you. my notes, Barnabas. I have to have a record of what I'm doing. Don't argue with me. Those notes must be burned now, tonight, before they get into the wrong hands. They won't. I said don't argue with me. Now, where do you keep them? In a metal box in my room. And the box is locked. So we'll go to Collinwood now and get them and burn them. I wish I could persuade you it isn't necessary. Well, you can't, so don't bother trying. But why do we have to go to Collingwood together? Why can't I go alone and bring the notebook back here to you? No. Why not? Because I want to examine the metal box myself. I want to make absolutely sure that no one has tampered with the lock. Strange. What is? You're actually frightened, aren't you? Well, why shouldn't I be frightened? If anyone got a hold of the contents of your notebook, I could be exposed and destroyed. I never thought you were capable of feeling any emotion, even fear. But you are. We wasted enough time. We're going to Collinwood. Come. All right. Strange? 
I'm sure she was out. Miss Hoffman? Miss Hoffman? Are you in there? I was mistaken. Collingwood into a hotel. Oh, stop it, Ron. Why don't you do that, Liz? Why don't you hang a sign out front and let out all the rooms? You're being absurd. You're the one who's being absurd. Our ancestors knew you were even thinking of letting a part of this house out to a man like Devlin. They'd be rolling over in their graves. I simply will not argue about it. I've made the decision and you'll have to accept it. I'll never accept it. I'm afraid you'll have to. Yes, there must be something I can say to you. You said everything there is to say and so have I. Liz, please. Oh, good evening, Elizabeth. What a pleasant surprise. Hello, Mrs. Goddard. I was about to show Mr. Collins where the original architecture near the West Wing had been altered. If we have your permission. Of course. It'll just take a moment. Thank you. Barnabas, before you go, I would like your opinion on my late sister's latest brainstorm. Roger. She is planning to open up the West Wing for Burke Devlin. Devlin? Yes, Devlin. He is planning to come in here bag in baggage. Now, what do you think of that? Roger, it isn't Devlin yet. Burke hasn't said he wants to do it. He is. I know Devlin. He'd give his eye teeth to make Collingwood his permanent address. It wouldn't be permanent. Eventually, they'll have their own home. Besides, Burke has some very strong reservations about whether he wants to do it or not. I don't believe that. If I know Devlin, he's had his bags already packed. Well, what is the purpose of renting it to uh, Burke? To keep Vicky here. Vicky? Well, David is very upset right now. If Vicky will leave, I don't, I don't know what would happen. He'd survive it. We could engage another governess. That isn't true. No one can take Vicky's place. Oh, that's nonsense, Liz. It isn't. David needs Vicky. That's why I made the offer, and I hope Burke accepts it. I see. You think I'm making a terrible mistake? Well, I'm not sure. You're not sure? You like the idea of Devon staying here? Well, I find it regrettable having someone other than a Collins of Collinwood. But on the other hand, I would be sorry to hear that Vicky was leaving. So would I, particularly when it isn't necessary. Well, I'm surprised that she doesn't want a home of her own. She wants to be near David, and I'm happy that she does. David is very lucky to have a companion like Miss Winters, as anyone would be.
She's making. Well, I wouldn't presume to do that. Elizabeth has made a decision, and I'm sure her judgment is sound. Thank you, Barnes. Well, if you'll excuse me. Mrs. Barnes. Mrs. Dr. Woodard. Dave. What, what are you doing here? Well, I, I just dropped by to see David. How is he? Uh, physically, he's fine, but uh, I gave him a sedative, so he'll get him a good night's sleep. Doctor, will you come in and sit down? I want to talk to you about David. Well, I'm sorry, Roger, but I, I can't right now. I've got a pressing appointment. Well, surely you can spare a few minutes? I'm sorry, Roger, I just can't right now. In fact, I'm late already. you all excuse me? Will you come back? I'll drop by tomorrow morning, and we'll have a talk then. Fine. Good night. Good night. Good night. Well, you couldn't wait to get out of this today. If you'll excuse us now. I would like to take a look at the reconstruction. I think you'll find it very interesting. Uh, sure, I will. Liz. Yes? Did you notice something strange about Barnabas just now? Strange? Was it my imagination, or did Barnabas seem distant, preoccupied, almost nervous? I didn't notice it particularly. I did. And he did seem nervous. I wonder why. But where is the book? On top of the armor. We'll get it. Right. I don't like Dr. Woodard being around Collinwood. Well, he just gave it to see David. Here it is. All safe. Well, open it. Right. Barnabas, I... What is it? It's been pried open. The lock. In the notebook? It's gone. <laughs> again next week. This has been Bill Holwig from West Texas for Broken Sea Audio Productions. www.brokensea.com Good evening. Good evening. The music for tonight's episode was composed by Brian of Seraphic Panopoly and Stevie Farnaby. Ha, 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 ha.